0: Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 974. On this week's show, David Lorela brings us interviews with a Major League General Manager and a new Major League Radio voice. In the first half of the show, David welcomes Ben Charrington, GM of the Pittsburgh Pirates. We hear about the club's willingness to innovate and focus on building instead of rebuilding, as well as insight on players like Daniel Vogelbach, David Bednar, and Henry Davis, the number one pick in last year's draft. Charrington also reflects on his days with the Red Sox organization, the challenges of projecting relievers, and how they are handling the development of top prospect O'Neill
1: Cruz. And we're also exposing him to other positions. And, you know, partly that is because we do believe he is, I don't know if unicorn is the right word, certainly unusual. And so we believe that his skills are so uncommon that. We, we owe it to him and the organization to push him to experience new things, to try new things. You never know, right? Like, when we're winning where we might need him on a given day, and that very well may be a shortstop. We don't want to limit it to that quite yet, though. After that,
0: David welcomes Jake Eisenberg, radio voice of the AAA Omaha Storm Chasers, who has also called Major League Games for the Mets and Royals this year. Jake tells us about his quick rise through the radio ranks and how lucky he feels to have called Major League Games already this year including one of those dramatic contests between the Mets and the Cardinals. We also hear about Brady Singer and Royals prospects like Nick Prado and Vinny Pasquantino, and Jake shares a very memorable adventure from his first Major League broadcast.
2: So I sprint across the concourse, I get in the elevator, the doors close, and then, you know, it's like one of those like funny fight scenes in a movie where there's chaos everywhere, and then someone gets in an elevator and everything just stops, and you just hear the elevator music for like 60 seconds. And so that's what's going on while this elevator is going up a couple of floors. The doors open and I shoot out of the elevator like a cannon, sprinting down these hallways in the Chase Field press area, which is a bit of a maze. But before we get to these great segments,
0: I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the place for you to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also get an ad-free membership for yourself or for a friend. You can enjoy browsing the site at blazing fast speeds, as well as knowing you are helping to keep the site going and supporting everything we do. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy
3: the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorla. My guest is Ben Charrington, general manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates. Ben, thanks for joining us on Fangraphs Audio. Well, I
1: appreciate you having me. enjoy talking baseball.
3: (laughs) Yes, you do. And I enjoy talking baseball. And we are going to talk, oh boy, about a lot of things, mostly Pirates, I guess. You know, as we speak, you know, we're talking late Wednesday morning, you know, your team, the Pirates are 12 and 17 in third place in the, the NL Central. Where is the team been in regard to the rebuild?
1: Yeah. So I think we feel really good about progress made in a number of areas. We know that, you know, simple part is just we gotta we gotta build the strongest, deepest forty man roster we possibly can and there's other things obviously that go into winning, but that's that's the main thing. So we've been focused on that and in all all ways of doing that over the last, you know, two and a half years or so since I've been here and we feel like we've made progress and seen progress in our overall organizational talent. And some of that is coming onto the 40-man roster and now transitioning to the big leagues. And while we've been doing that, we've been also working hard at just innovating, continuing to get better and more on the strategic side in terms of how we're preparing for games and deploying and all that stuff. And that's fun to see progress there too. And I think maybe even simpler than all that, you know, the record is the record. We know we still have uh, lots to do to get better and there's there's nothing not to still get better at. But if you watch our team and you're around our team, you know, one thing that makes it, helps make it fun to be a part of it is our guys really do just play hard. You know, they, they work hard and play hard and care and and want to be part of this and that makes more difficult nights like last night we got beat up by a really good team in the dodgers but you know we got here this morning and you know guys want to be here they're working hard and i expect we'll play hard today
3: When you met with the uh, media during the December 2019 winter meetings, you know, this was shortly after you were hired. You know, I just mentioned rebuild. You sounded reluctant to use that word at the time. And I know rebuild is a word that most fans don't want to hear, but it seemed pretty clear to me that that is exactly what the team needed.
1: Yeah, it's possible that I was being too sort of precise with the definition of the word. You know, I, I think I was thinking about it coming in at that time as okay we're you know we're focused on building something, not rebuilding something. I think over time, I've just sort of allowed you and others to use the word you want <laughs> if 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 rebuild is uh publicly more accurate, then that's fine. It doesn't really change what we're focused on here and doesn't change what we the efforts we have made to improve in different ways, and certainly you know the things we know we still need to so I'm comfortable with whatever word you'd like to use. what we're focused on is uh doing everything we can and working as hard as we can so that we can get to winning as fast as we possibly can.
3: You mentioned, Ben, uh, getting beat up by the Dodgers last night. I think it's safe to say that top to bottom, they're one of the game's strongest organizations. What are they doing to make them that good? And uh, more importantly, can it be cloned?
1: I think more than one team is trying, you know, like, you know, there's certainly a standard right now and, you know, it's not the only organization doing really good things, but they're obviously doing really good things and they've got, you know, sort of they've they've got a, a really nice combination of scouting and development and humming at a really high level. And I'm sure there's, you know, really good actual scouting and coaching and analysis going on inside that organization. Then of course they can also pick their spots and either acquire or retain you know, really high end proven major league players also. So, you know, obviously hard to comment on the environment, not being there, but it looks like they got a room full of guys that, you know, like to play and like to win together. So yeah, it looks like there's a lot going on and I don't have anything specific that I would point to as something that, you know, we're trying to do like they are another team might, but, you know, I think think a more general theme might be that is just innovation and willing to... Try new things in in the pursuit of improvement as as long as you have evidence and belief in that new thing. And, you know, it seems to me from what I know, and looking from a distance, the Dodgers have certainly been doing that consistently over time for years now. And that's all built up into a pretty strong machine right now.
3: And the Tampa Bay Rays are obviously building a very strong organization. They have been. And, you know, with a budget that is significantly less than the Dodgers, based on what I am seeing, you seem to be modeling the Rays approach somewhat in, in pitcher usage. You know, at least that is what I saw on a recent visit to PNC. You know, is, is that accurate?
1: You know, I think I think the Rays are a team that we admire also, obviously, and and, and probably is fair to say their sort of, you know, market situation is closer to ours than the Dodgers would be. There are other teams like that too. And and we try to learn whatever we can from the teams that we're competing with in baseball. And, you know, out of baseball outside of baseball too outside of major league baseball ultimately there is something about solutions needing to be in the end local though you know specific to our specific reality and um and the players we have so all we're trying to do in terms of pitching deployment is put our guys in the best possible position to get outs as quickly as possible and then as soon as there's a different option on the team that is a better choice to get the next handful of outs, whether that's three outs or a lot more than that, you know go, go to that guy and and so skill development's part of that, of course. you know you, you can't get any outs in the major leagues unless you have really good skills. so it, it still goes back to that. but yeah we are we're just trying to give our guys the best chance to succeed as quickly as they can. and you know hopefully that the more we do that and as, as our overall skill level continues to improve, that will add up to more effectiveness and ultimately add up to winning. And the nice thing so far that's happened, uh, and this is happening at the major league level and minor league level, is as we've made some of the changes in, in how pitching is deployed, the feedback from the pitchers themselves has been really positive and, and really team first, I would say, because it's not easy being asked to do something different than what you're accustomed to or roles changing, it really is about putting the team first and our our pitchers' reaction to some of the changes both at the major league level and minor league level has been uh, very positive and that's, and that's really gratifying for all of us, because ultimately that's what it's all about is putting the team first and trying to win games. And building
3: a strong farm system is obviously crucial you know, to this and in any, any org, and you helped build a strong system, you know, in Boston and again in Toronto. So we should talk a little about some of the guys, you know, in your current system, you know, which is ranked pretty highly. You know, Henry Davis, who I believe was recently promoted to double A. Was taken first overall in last year's draft, and uh, as we all know, a lot of people were surprised because you know Jack Leiter, Marcelo Meyer, to name two, were seen as the likely number one pick.
1: Yeah, so I think last year's draft is really interesting, and and I I trust that there were players you know with whether it was in the public space or you know perhaps even other teams that had the order slightly differently than than we did. The truth was that. As we entered the draft last summer, the night before the draft, the morning of the draft, the first day of the draft, Henry Davis was sitting there first on our board. And so we took the player who was first on our board. And, of course, we look forward to time telling us, you know, how that works out. But we're thrilled to have Henry in this organization. He's, as you mentioned, he's he got his first taste of double A last night, got off to a good start. He's been everything we thought he would be, really. From and our scouting group did a great job going back to his days as a high school player in, in uh, Westchester County, New York. So I think we knew we were getting someone who was an extremely hard worker. knew we knew we were getting someone who really cares about his own performance and, and continuous improvement, but also about the team and winning. We knew we were getting someone who's got the, we think, the mental and physical toughness to handle the catching position. And we we thought we were getting someone who's really talented and we continue to get better in different aspects of the game and we're seeing that happen. So we're thrilled to have Henry. It was a draft year where we, we certainly spent a lot of time on those other names you mentioned and and, and a handful of others, frankly, at the top of the draft. But Ultimately, Henry was uh, first on our board, and so it made it an easy choice uh, when it was a hard time to pick.
3: Yes, yeah, so with Davis being first on your board makes this somewhat of of an apples and oranges question. But back in uh, I believe it was 2009 is when the Pirates took Tony Sanchez, a catcher, out of Boston College. I think it was fourth overall and that was reportedly to save money to spend in in subsequent picks. Do you see much viability and potential value in doing that, you know, following that uh, rather than taking the quote-unquote best player on your board?
1: Well, I I think at the top of the draft, we'd focus most and maybe almost all on best player on the board. I, I think we have a job to do to look at how do we get the most total talent out of every draft season? And of course, as you know, you know every team has an available pool of money to spend on the draft. And so you have to look at how to maximize that, optimize that across the entire draft. But we also know clearly from history that by far the biggest value from the draft comes at the top of the first round. I mean, it's not if, it's not close if you look historically that there's just on average going to be way more contribution from the top after the first round than than deeper in the draft. So I think that would lead us back to, you know, almost always mostly focusing on best player on the board. And again, in our case last year, that was Henry Davis. And then once you sort of get there, then you can look at Okay, is there a way to how do we execute this draft in a way that gives us a chance to get as much talent back from it as we can because ultimately that's what we all want. We want we want, you know, as much talent as possible to, so that it adds up to winning and and I think that's what our players want too. That's where our, our players want us to uh find a way to do that too because they want to be part of winning.
3: And in the, you know, 2009 draft where Tony Sanchez was taken 4th over, you know, Mike Trout went 25th overall, so it's not like the draft is an exact science.
1: It's a hard thing, and and you and I both have been following it for long enough to know that it's a, it's a it's a really hard thing to do. I, I respect so much the group of people, not just with the Pirates, but from around the game, that spend all year trying to get that right. Whether they're whether it's scouts or analysts or you know anybody involved in amateur scouting, it's just a, it's an incredibly hard job, incredibly important job because we're trying to we're trying to beat our competition and. Part of the way we're going to do that, certainly with the Pirates, is to create advantages in the draft over time. Whether that's whether that's through just getting better and better all the time at the actual evaluation and you know placement of value on a player, or, or the process of of setting the ranking and the list itself, uh, the way we do that, or, or the decisions and execution itself at the end, all that has to come together. Or you know, we like every other teams are, are trying to find those incremental advantages inside that process to bring. Uh, A little bit more talent back to the Pirates than other teams do,
3: and with value and projection in mind, O'Neill Cruz is the organization's top-rated prospect. And I think most people who follow prospects know that uh, Cruz is a six-foot-seven shortstop. How does one go about projecting a unicorn? I assume you can't simply look at O'Neill Cruz's performance metrics and project it the same way as if he were a six-two shortstop or you know, or can you
1: yeah no I, I think it's a it's a good question and and one we try not to overcomplicate, frankly you know we try to allow what we're seeing and you know and, and what our our experts are telling us and then also what the what the metrics are telling us to mostly tell us the story of who he is now as a player and what he may become and uh what the story is telling us right now is that he we believe absolutely he can play shortstop at the major league level of course we also believe he has significant offensive ability and a chance to be a dynamic hitter and we're also exposing him to other positions and you know partly that is because we do believe he is i don't know if unicorn is the right word certainly unusual and so we believe that his skills are so uncommon that we we owe it to him and the organization to push him to experience new things, to try new things. You never know, right? Like when we're winning where we might need him on a given day and that very well may be a shortstop. We don't want to limit it to that quite yet, though. We'll see how that evolves over time. There are players who get exposed to different positions at one point in their career and end up settling in at one. It can also work in the other direction. We talked about the Dodgers before, and you know, just all you got to do is look out last night on the field and watch Dodgers games from last October, and there's a lot of former shortstops on the field that have found their way into that lineup. So it's an interesting thing. But O'Neal is incredibly important to us, and, and we're trying to give him... Uh, the exposure and opportunities to develop in ways to give him a chance to help us win as many games in Pittsburgh as possible.
3: Yeah, when I interviewed you uh, for Fangraphs back in uh, January 2012, you, know, you talked a lot about assigning value to players, both you know, internally and players on other teams. Has that process changed at all over the past decade
1: Oh I'd say quite a bit. I mean, the and, you know, I'm not speaking for the Pirates here, I think every team has their own process, but you know, there's there's certainly um I think number one, there's more and more different kinds of information going into that analysis, going into that evaluation, different inputs and those inputs are weighed differently and teams continue to learn more and more about uh what inputs to include and how to weigh them. And then, of course, because there's more inputs and we have to figure out what to make of those inputs and how to weigh them, et cetera, that means there's also, you know, different and more different types of people and more people involved in that process. But that's also like part of, you know, it's a big part of the fun of the job is is trying to figure out how to do that better and better and more precisely and what information matters and. Uh, or what information matters a little bit more than other information. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that any information doesn't matter. It's just a question of how much it matters and how much we should weigh it. And we and we're working at that all the time. And then of course, uh we've got to keep an eye out for the future too because there's uh something either there's something about a current piece of information we don't know enough about and need to study more, or, you know, stress test more to figure out how much it should be weighed or there's a piece of information that we don't even have yet. And need to search out and find and um, you know it just gets to the constant innovation that happens inside the game that every team is focused on and pirates are no different you were in
3: Boston of course in uh, 2012 in that same interview you addressed the decision to not resign Jonathan Papelbon you know you said that sometimes the market uh, see the quote. Sometimes the market goes past where we assign the value. You know, you added that there were other options available, and I know that you ended up trading for Mark Melanson, who was not good in Boston. He then became a uh, shutdown closer, you know, with the Pirates. Interestingly enough, after you traded him. So looking back, is there much you can say about those decisions outside of? You know, it's really hard to project relievers.
1: Well, I would say that, uh, and, and it still feels that way. And you're bringing me, bringing me back to a time of, <laughs> I, remember, I remember the Melanson trade, both ends of the Melanson trade, certainly remember the Andrew Bailey trade. And I remember signing Koji Uehara, which happened you know, largely because of the advocacy of others in our office, frankly, not because I didn't appreciate Koji, but at the time, You know, it felt at the time we signed Koji that we had other guys, a couple that you mentioned that uh, and we had just traded for Hanrahan uh, as part of that Melanson deal that, you know, we hoped solidified the back end of the game. And and yet we had people and Zach Scott was one of them um, in Boston at the time, I recall, who were really pushing to, to sign Koji. So anyway, a good process from folks in our office helped make up for. My mistakes, you might say, in trades, but it probably does speak to what you're saying. It is very difficult to project or levers, and it's just it still is a relatively volatile position in terms of performance. Not all the time. There are some exceptions, and Melanson's probably one of them. He's been incredibly consistent since leaving Boston over time, and you know credit to him. And you know super super effective. But it's also uh, you know I've, you know I have thought about that those series of decisions because. It doesn't seem, you know, enough just to say, well, it's just, you know, bullpens are volatile and these are things are hard to predict. That seems like a bit of a cop-out. You know, there's more to it than that and more that I, I needed to learn and we needed to learn from all of those decisions, both the ones that did not work out. Clearly there were some, and in Koji's in, in case, the one that did.
3: And we are starting to run short on time, Ben, but uh, a few more things. One of your most notable trades since coming to Pittsburgh actually was for a reliever. You gave up a good player to get him, but David Bednar has been really, really good.
1: Yeah, and and again, you know, credit to people here who identified Bednar as someone we might be able to get, like as a sort of you know down down level name in a trade. You know, we we were obviously talking to the Padres and other teams about Musgrove and Bednar is a guy we had circled as you know maybe we could get him in this deal without him being the first name in it. You know, like the raw stuff, like the minor league track record, had some insight on the character, and obviously a local guy here from Pittsburgh. And, you know, it's just seemed like a guy just, all that hadn't happened yet is he just hadn't performed in the big leagues quite yet. And seemed like he probably would in time if given the opportunity. So, not saying it was anything, you know, really more than that, you know, probably, you know, a guy that any number of other teams would have identified, but a good job by our team here to sort of like circle him as someone we might be able to include in that deal among others that would help help have a chance to you know give that deal a a chance to work and we knew of course that we were trading a good pitcher and and certainly musgrove has been all of that for the padres last couple of years
3: along with having really good stuff bednar is a fairly imposing man physically which leads us to daniel vogelbach when i was at pc a few weeks ago the padres were there and one of their front office members on that trip was chatting with me and he asked me a question that I don't know the answer to, which is uh, is Daniel Vogelbach the heaviest leadoff hitter in major league history?
1: I think someone did that analysis actually, I think, if I'm unless I'm mistaken, that I think it might have been Adam Dunn. It might have been somebody else. But anyway, someone asked that question and did the analysis and I think the answer was that Vogelbach is not the heaviest leadoff hitter in history, but maybe he is the heaviest leadoff hitter we've we've had with the Pirates, uh, or leadoff DH <laughs> at least we've had with the Pirates. But he's a he's a blast to be around Vogie. Like, you know, we had heard about that from others before acquiring him. Andy Haynes, who uh is our hitting coach now, came from Milwaukee, knew him from there and was a big part of recommending Daniel. And he's a joy to be around. He 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 absolutely loves baseball, loves hitting, really fun personality in our clubhouse and But really smart, too. This guy studies the game and and knows what pitchers are trying to do.
3: Yeah. Let's segue to managers to to close. You mentioned learning and making mistakes earlier. Was hiring Bobby Valentine to manage the Red Sox one of the bigger mistakes that you have made in baseball?
1: Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, at the time we were the Red Sox were going through a period of adversity, obviously, with, with Theo and Tito leaving together at the same time, which thinking back to that time, I guess being there, I sort of knew it was happening. So maybe it was like less shocking at the moment uh, as it might've been as I look at when I look back at it. But thinking about two figures in Red Sox history and baseball, baseball, Red Sox baseball history anyway, hard to imagine a, a combination of executive and manager that had a bigger impact than those two and for them to both leave the organization at the same time for different reasons and you know in retrospect appropriate reasons was really a it was a period it was it was like a body blow and we were trying to we all of us were you know we were trying to pick that up and and do the right thing going forward and of course i was new to the job and and working with closer with ownership for the first time and uh, we went through a process and together, you know, ended up hiring Bobby, who was incredibly experienced, you know, really had passion for doing that job. I think uh, came in with, you know, good intentions. We all wanted it to work. It didn't work out as well as we wanted it to in 2012. I certainly take, you know, the biggest part of the responsibility for that as a GM, you have to do that. And so we decided, into uh, into, you know, I think ownership's credit and uh, that, you know, we we decided so quickly enough, I think, that it was not working the way we wanted to, and and made a change, and, and the change led to success in 2013, and and then more stuff happened after that, and then the Red Sox have had you know plenty of success uh, more recently, so that that team is in good shape. Uh, but you know we learned from, you know, certainly learned from every experience and learned from that one, and I'm really grateful for the time I had in that role in Boston.
3: So let's jump to the present and the future. Why is Derek Shelton the right manager for the Pirates now and why might he be the right manager for the Pirates when the team is ready to be a serious contender?
1: Yeah, he's the right manager for the Pirates right now for the same reasons he was when we hired him uh because he I would say a combination of of you know a lot of things I'd point to specifically is one is he is he is a learner like from the minute he wakes up to the minute he goes to bed at night, he is trying to learn something about baseball that's going to help him do his job better or us as an organization get better. And with where we are as an organization and how important learning, I think learning is to being able to innovate and make the changes we need to make to get better, it's really, I think it's really important for us to have a constant learner in the manager's office, and we have that in Sheltie. He's also he's 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 another uh, he's like an extension of the front office in terms of his reach across baseball. So uh, as we get better, part of getting better certainly is hiring staff and building a baseball operations group that includes the Major League staff, but also extends well beyond the Major League staff that is the best in baseball. And of course, we've got to retain the best people to do that. We also have to hire new people in order to do that, and Sheltie is so connected around the game that he helps us find good people. He's already do, done that on a number of occasions since since we've worked together here with the Pirates. And then he is also uh, really, really comfortable and understands how a clubhouse operates. And, you, and we talked about Tito before. I thought that was always one of Tito's really special qualities. Tito just understands how an, how a clubhouse operates, understands you know, who is the guy that needs a little extra time today? Who's the guy that needs a little firmer hand today? You know, who's the guy that, that nobody's thinking about that needs, you know, uh, uh, that, that needs to be heard? And I think maybe just from Tito being, living and growing up in a clubhouse all his life, he developed those skills, that that sort of instinct for how the clubhouse operates. And Shelty has some of that same thing. Obviously, the background's different, but he really understands how a clubhouse operates, helps us stay on top of so many things, get ahead of so many things. And as we're trying to build culture here, that's so critical. And he's been a huge part of that. And he's going to continue to be the right guy because he's going to continue to learn and get better as we all need to. And um, for me, as, as in a leadership role, if, if I feel like someone is just continuing to get better all the time, then I'm going to feel really good about that person being in a role for a long, long time. And I've had a lot of fun working with Sheltie these last two and a half years. Look forward to doing that for a long time.
3: Right, so as you know, it is not uncommon for a team to hire a manager who is very good helping with the rebuild and then replacing him with somebody with the idea that, well, we're we're ready to win now. And I think that that is quite often a PR move more than a logic move.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, if that's common, then that fits perfectly here because we're trying to be uncommon about you know the way we're doing this and how we're how we're building, and so you know we'll just continue to focus on being uncommon, I guess.
3: Yeah. So last question, Ben. When will we see the Pirates finally turn that corner and be a serious contender?
1: As fast as we possibly can. <laughs> you know, that's 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 my answer to that question. I get it, I get asked a lot. I think we're so focused on every day finding ways to get better. It could be small things. Could be bigger things. Could be something related to a player. Could be something totally unrelated to a player. That we spend so much time thinking about that, that we spend much less time thinking about. Well, when when exactly is all that going to add up to more wins? We know it needs to. You know that's that's why we're here. So we're gonna we're gonna do that as fast as we possibly can. You know, we also know from history and my own mistakes at times that if you try to shortcut a process too much, that can lead to bigger mistakes that can actually set you back. So we're mindful of that too, and need to need to keep that in mind. But some of it is just as simple as just again just getting after it and getting better at everything every day. A little bit of, a little bit of you know a little, a little bit of that is player acquisition and finding the right players. A lot of that is player improvement, putting them in the right place to perform on the field, building the culture to support that. Uh, we invest in that, all of that every day, and believe that if we do and stay diligent to that, it'll add up to winning as fast as it possibly can. A common sense
3: response from the GM of a team that prides itself on being uncommon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben, really appreciate your time. I know that you have a uh, first pitch coming up here shortly in Pittsburgh. So thank you for coming on to Fangrass Audio.
1: Enjoyed it, David. Have a great day. Welcome back.
3: The guest in the second segment today is Jake Eisenberg, radio voice of the AAA Omaha Storm Chasers, and from time to time, radio voice of the New York Mets, and pinch it radio voice for the Kansas City Royals. Jake, you are having a pretty busy season so far.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's a pretty good way to put it. I mean, the last few weeks especially have been uh, kind of waking up and trying to figure out what time zone I'm in and what city I'm in. And that's, you know, that's the way baseball season goes. But it's been especially cool to have, you know, the first big league opportunity with the New York Mets in Arizona and in St. Louis and then, you know, come back to Omaha and be back with the Storm Chasers and then, you know, get asked to pinch it for the Royals for a couple of days last week, which was, you know an absolute blast. So being at a bunch of different places and calling baseball and having a good time.
3: And we will talk about all of those experiences. But first, I should note that your broadcasting career as a whole seems like it's been a bit of a whirlwind. You graduated, I believe, from the University of Maryland in 2017. And you have now called games, I think, at pretty much every level from short season to the big leagues. So uh, do you ever pinch yourself with how quickly this is unwound for you?
2: All the time. I have a bruise on my left arm right now because I keep pinching myself. I've been really, really fortunate to have opportunities at each level that, you know, the people that I've met and gotten a chance to work with and learn from have helped me get to the next level year after year. You know, Brooklyn in 2017, and then Winston-Salem in 2018, Richmond in 2019, and kind of, sort of since 2020 with Omaha, you know, obviously first game wasn't until 2021. So I had to wait a little bit for that opportunity to really get started. But, you know, like I said, the people that I've had the chance to work with and learn from make the next opportunity possible. That's been the way that it's always been since, you know, I started calling baseball consistently at the university of Maryland with Maryland baseball network. And then in the Cape Cod league in 2016 with, with the Chatham anglers, there's, been so many people along the way that have helped me get better uh, just a little bit better every single time I get the chance to call a baseball game and that's what it's all about it's I think it's no different for players than it is broadcasters in some ways that you know baseball is a game where you're going to go out there and do your best and frankly fail a lot and it's how you adjust and respond and get a little bit better the next time out there that helps you progress forward
3: and how Jake does a minor league broadcaster in one market get an opportunity to call big league games as a fill in for another market <laughs>
2: that's a that's a really good question you know it's it's a lot of the same things i think that would get you from one place to the next you know some of it is luck, a lot of it is timing, some of it is also, you know, the relationships you develop along the way with with the case for the Mets. You know, I've had the chance to get to know Howie Rose and Wayne Randazzo over the last several years, really since I started calling games in Brooklyn and had the chance to go shadow the Mets broadcast uh, late in the 2017 season and connect with them. And they've given me some really good feedback, you know, constructive and positive and, and negative at times when warranted. On you know the tapes that i 've sent them over the last several years, and so when this opportunity was one that I became aware of, you know I threw my name in in the hat for it, uh, so to speak, and, and sent my materials off, and then reached out to them and kind of asked them more about it, what they thought if they felt i 'd be a good fit, the best people to talk to, and it kind of just went from there and the fact that you know I was on the other end of the phone call being told that I was the one that they chose is frankly still surreal. Uh, especially since, you know, I grew up 30 minutes from Shea Stadium. This is the team that I grew up with. And to have the chance to sit and share those games with all of those Mets fans, of which I am one, is is more than a dream come true. It's a dream beyond dreams.
3: Yeah, how different, Jake, is it calling a minor league game and a big league game?
2: Well, the biggest difference that I've kind of figured out over the last couple of weeks is that at the minor league level, for starters, you know, it's it's the broadcaster's responsibility to introduce these players to the audience in a lot of ways for the first time. You know, they're they're not known as much in these markets, certainly if they're playing, you know, in Omaha for the first time. It's up to me to teach everybody about who Nick Prado is when he first gets called up to join the Omaha Storm Chasers last year. Same goes for Bobby Witt Jr. And maybe fans have read about them, but they don't really know them yet. And it's my responsibility to Teach people about who they are to the best of my ability. At the big league level, that's not the case. You know, you look at the New York Mets and it's like, well, hey, people know who Jacob DeGrom is. People know who Max Scherzer is. They know the stuff that he's done. They know, you know, his biographical information. And so that's one of the biggest differences is that instead of introducing fans and listeners to the characters of this baseball story, you're trying to illuminate these characters in a new way in the game that's unfolding that's one big difference and the other big difference is that at the minor league level the focal point is really development sure wins and losses matter and you want your team to win more than it loses but at the end of the day the goal is to see these players develop and get better and then progress and at the big league level that doesn't exist as much the players are there and sure you want them to develop and get better as big leaguers but you know game in and game out. It's about whether the team won or lost and whether they're getting closer to playoff contention or World Series contention or not. And so those are the two biggest differences, I think, between calling a minor league game and calling a big league game.
3: How much prep work, Jake, was there in your initial Mets games? Because while everybody knows the players, I would think Mets fans, as a rule, know a lot more about how this team has been playing now than you because you are broadcasting AAA games.
2: A ton. And the truth is, no matter how much prep I do and how much I read, there are always going to be a slew of fans out there that are listening to Mets games that will know more than I do. And that will forever be the case. And you just kind of do the best you can with all the information that's available. And one of the things that, frankly, I struggled with those first... Three games, six games with the Mets is sifting through all of the available information, which can be overwhelming at times, you know, to the degree of information that we have, both biographical and statistical, and figuring out what pieces of information are more important than others or more worth sharing than others or help share the story of that game better than others because there's just so much. It's impossible to see it all. It's impossible to read it all. It's impossible to digest it all. So, How do we sift through what's available to us and tell that story in the best way possible?
3: The Mets have had some pretty interesting games this year, particularly with bean balls. Did you happen to call any of those games?
2: (laughs) Yeah, there was that game in St. Louis a couple of weeks ago where things got a little bit heated and, and benches cleared. And, you know, it's one of those things where there's just a lot of frustration about a team getting hit time and time again. And you saw I'm sure the comments from Chris Bassett and the other pitchers on the Mets staff and also from James McCann who was advocating for a quote unquote on deck circle type thing for pitchers and basically just trying to find a solution for there to be a middle ground between getting a grip on a baseball, but nothing that's gonna enhance a pitcher's stuff and also making sure that, you know, pitchers feel confident in being able to hit their spots and, you know, not losing control of a ball that they're throwing, you know, ninety plus miles an hour, which you know, could be dangerous when things are slipping. And, you know, it didn't seem like there was any true intent. And frankly, I hope there wouldn't be. I I hope that we get to a point in this game where intentionally hitting somebody isn't something that we see either at an onset or in retaliation. Um, And I think that's an understanding that, you know, nothing was, was intentional. But yeah, it was definitely something that we saw. And it was definitely one of the narratives from that week.
3: And what was it like on the broadcast end? Because it is very easy to prepare for and you know be used to calling, you know, there's a drive, deep left field is gone. It's different to call and they're charging the mound and there's a scrum happening and fists are flying. <laughs> uh,
2: so during that particular inning, uh, Wayne Randazza was doing the play-by-play. So he was the one who had to kind of shift his brain to do Dare I say a boxing blow by blow mode? Uh, the truth is, though, like there are brawls that happen at the minor league level, and I've certainly seen a few of them. So it wasn't anything that I hadn't seen before, but it was certainly the first time I'd seen it on that stage. So
3: Wayne had the uh, you know blow by blow in that game. What about your own calls? Does anything stand out when you've maybe gone back and listened to your tapes, thinking, "Hey, I sounded pretty good there. I'll I'll remember this."
2: <laughs> sure, I mean there are always things that can be better. And I'll listen to all of these calls for as long as I live and think, yeah, that, that was, that was decent or that was good, but I wish I had said this, or I wish I had inflected in this direction instead. But, you know, just thinking about the first big league game that I had the chance to call the Friday game, the first game of the series against the Arizona Diamondbacks. And, you know, the first inning that I'm doing play-by-play, the Mets score a run on a bloop single, and I get to call a run scoring for the Mets for the first time. And then in the seventh inning, James McCann hits a no doubt homer to left field. And it's the first big league homer I get the chance to call. And, you know, the way that game wound up, the Diamondbacks tied in the bottom of the ninth inning on a Dalton Varsho home run. And the way that Wayne and I were alternating is that I got to call the 10th inning of that game. And so I got to call the Mets taking the lead. And then ultimately, I got to say that the Mets won the game. It was really the only scenario in which I would call the final out. And lo and behold, it happened in my first game. And so, you know, I think those three or four moments in particular are ones that I'll remember fondly forever.
3: And it was just last week, I believe, that you got a phone call saying that, hey, we need you in Kansas City to do a few games. I know that Bobby Witt Jr. hit his first home run last week. Did you, by chance, have that game?
2: I did. So that was Tuesday in Kansas City. Uh, I got the call on Monday that they were hoping I was available to fill in. And thankfully, you know, it worked out and I was able to go down there and call those games with Mike Sweeney, who was just incredible. And Tuesday was a special game. The Royals, you know, they won. It was a great game. The atmosphere at Kauffman Stadium was great. Bobby like you said hit his first major league home run. Uh, MJ Melendez made his major league debut and got his first big league hit. And so those are, you know, incredibly special moments not only because they're big moments in those two players careers but also because those two guys were in Omaha last year and you know you get to know them and you watch them struggle and, and you watch them succeed and to see them, you know, get those milestone moments at the big league level was was really really special and I feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to help deliver those moments to the people tuning in.
3: We should talk, Jake, a little about some of the young players on the Royals that you have called games for in Omaha. Or I guess that are still in Omaha. Nick Prado, for instance, who I believe is on the injured list now, has a very high ceiling.
2: Yeah, and you know, he won a minor league gold glove last year, which, you know, I don't know if people realize is frankly more rare than winning a gold glove at the big league level because at the big league level you're going up against what, fourteen other teams in each league, fourteen other guys at your position, but in the minor league level, there's one for all of minor league baseball. So, you know, it's one of 120 teams. And, you know, what he did defensively last year was exceptional, and he's continued doing that this year. And then, you know, a little bit of a slow start at the plate this season, and I think there were some adjustments on the pitch clock side of things that, frankly, I think affect hitters more than pitchers in some instances. But, you know, once he adjusted to that and found his feet, he started, you know, finding his swing, and unfortunately on the injured list right now. But when he comes back, and that should be soon, you know, I imagine he'll hit the ground running again and continue to produce to the level that he did last year, which makes him one of the top prospects in baseball.
3: And something else about Nick Prado that I think a lot of people don't know is I learned on a spring training trip this year, Hagan Danner, who was a high school teammate of uh, Prado's, said that they both pitched. You know, Danner actually caught in high school as well. He said that Prado had one of the best change-ups he's ever seen.
2: Yeah, and you know what? It, it's not surprising, especially because when you're at the high school level, when, when you're one of the best players in the country and you're getting drafted in the first round, like, you're going to be a guy who does everything at the high school level, right? And it's no surprise that wherever he was on the high school diamond, that he was, you know, among the best players at that position.
3: And one of the the best young pitchers at the amateur level who's had mixed success early in his career, you know, mixed success in the big leagues is Brady Singer. I believe he is back in Omaha now.
2: Yeah, he got optioned down to the Storm Chasers about a week and a half ago now. And the main reason is not performance based. It was because at the onset of the season, the Royals were having Brady pitch out of the bullpen and he wasn't getting a ton of opportunities, and they see him as a big piece of their future as a starting pitcher, and so they decided to option him to the Storm Chasers, basically get stretched out, build up innings, build up pitch counts, and then return to the big league club to join the starting rotation. He's now made Two starts with the Storm Chasers, and he's given up one run on four hits. He's got seven strikeouts, a couple of walks, and seven and two-thirds inning. He's he's looked really, really sharp. And you know the biggest narrative around him is the development of that third pitch, that changeup, which he's used. And at times it's gotten away from him, but more often than not, it's looked really good. And most importantly, it seems like he's throwing it with confidence.
3: And I have spoken to Brady, who who is very articulate, which leads me to the fact that broadcasters conduct pregame interviews. Who have been your favorites over the years? Guys that are just really fun to talk to. <laughs>
2: I'll be honest. I love talking to pitchers. I think they're so intricate in their preparation. Uh, both in in pitch design and how they approach hitters that, you know, if you ask pitchers good questions, they will give you good answers. And that's not to say that hitters won't either, but there's just a little bit of a a different approach, I think, in, in talking to hitters. There's a little bit more, you know, to use a metaphor, bat to ball as opposed to process. But, you know, over the years, frankly, Nick Prado has been a guy that I love talking to. There is nobody that I've been around in minor league baseball that is more Thoughtful and cerebral in answering questions than Nick. And I really appreciate both his honesty and his thoughtfulness. You know, he won't just give you an answer. He really takes a beat to consider what he says and then tell you, you know, what he thinks and how he's going about what he does. So Nick's been a guy that I've loved talking to over the last, you know, couple of years. And in general, there are always interesting stories to be found, whether you're talking to a guy who's. On a top 100 prospects list, or is somebody that has been around for a while and hasn't reached the big leagues, or is somebody that may be a name that's flying under the radar. So, honestly, there haven't really been any guys that I haven't enjoyed talking to. It's just about asking good questions and kind of peeling back the layers to find those really interesting stories.
3: Speaking of guys who fly a bit under the radar, Benny Pasquantino is starting to make a name for himself, and he's off to a a good start in Omaha.
2: Yeah, I would say if Vinny is still under your radar, then you've got to get a new radar because he's been exceptional. He had a terrific season in 2021, and I think maybe the only reason he didn't get more headlines is because he might have been overshadowed by Bobby Witt Jr. and MJ Melendez and Nick Prado, who also had sensational 2021 seasons. But the truth is, last year, Vinny Pasquintino had, get this, the same number of extra base hits, walks and strikeouts. He had 64 of each. Now, it's one thing to have a one-to-one strikeout-to-walk ratio, especially as, you know, a big left-handed hitting slugger. It's another to also have the same number of extra base hits. That's what he did last year, and now in his first year at the A level, he's pretty much doing it again. He's got six doubles, a triple, and six home runs. That's 13 extra base hits. David, he also has 13 strikeouts, so he's got the same number of extra base hits as strikeouts, and oh, he's also got 19 walks, so he's got a strikeout to walk ratio that is off the charts good. He's also pummeling the ball when he makes contact and he's been exactly as advertised and at a new level for the first time. It's such an advanced approach and maybe one that you don't expect because of his, you know, body type or what you would expect, you know, a stereotypical big left-handed slugger to be. You might expect a lot of swing and miss, but it's such an advanced approach and it, you know, watching him hit is it's just a lot of fun because he does damage, he finds his pitch, and he crushes it.
3: And while I have not spoken to Vinny, I have been told that he is actually a very good interview.
2: Oh, he's a riot. We chatted the other day. He was he joined us pregame uh, about a week and a half ago, and he's just so comfortable you know, speaking into a microphone, which is not super common. And first off, he's great about answering the things that you know, you'd ask him about, but he'll also take you in a different direction. He keeps, he kept me on my toes in that conversation. You know, he he was talking about how you know we were sitting outside and it was super windy, and I had him in all these conditions. Of course, it was a nice day, 60 degrees, and he was just you know <laughs> just having some fun. Uh, but he makes those conversations lighthearted and approachable and relatable the way that you know I think they're meant to be, and he gives you a little bit of himself. He gives you a little bit of Vinny the person in addition to Vinny the baseball player.
3: And of course, broadcasters develop relationships with players. When you came back from doing Mets games, did any of the guys give you a hard time? (laughs)
2: <laughs> saying that, hey, you're you're a you're a big leaguer now. Will you talk to me? Actually, actually, Vinny was the one who gave me gave me a hard time. As soon as I I got back, he said, "Oh, look at this guy just walking back in here." And of course, he was joking. Uh, and the truth is, is that everybody in that Storm Chasers clubhouse was really excited for me and happy for me, and that that felt amazing. You know, watching these guys, you know, try and get to the next level and hopefully succeed at the next level is what makes this job so rewarding and there are players across major league baseball right now that I've been lucky enough to see at the minor league level and watch their careers progress and to have that feeling reciprocated was something that was a, was a little bit unexpected you know you don't really know if you know the players that you talk to you know look at you in the same way that you look at them sometimes and for everyone to be as supportive and excited for me as I would be for them to have an opportunity like that was was really really special and uh definitely frankly one of one of the highlights of my career to this point.
3: Every young ball player of course is really excited to finally get up to the big leagues. You know, I I picture them in the hotel room after their debut thinking, you know, this is heaven. I want to stay here for, forever. As a broadcaster, did you have that same feeling after your first Mets game even though you knew that you were going back to Omaha soon?
2: Of course, you know that's that's the dream. The goal is to do this at the highest level and to do it as long as you can and as joyful as you can for as long as someone will trust you with the opportunity to do it. And the truth is, getting to call those games for the Mets and the ones that I'll get to do over the course of the rest of this season are going to be an incredible experience that I'm very grateful to have. And the same goes, you know, for filling in for the Royals a couple of days last week. The truth of it though is, is that I'm thrilled to also still have the chance to call Storm Chasers games this week in Des Moines, a road city that I actually really enjoy coming to and, you know, seeing all of these guys and telling their stories and doing this job to the best of my ability, uh, wherever, wherever I may find myself and wherever I'm trusted to deliver the stories of these games is, is a true joy. Of course, you want to do it at the big league level, you know that's why minor league baseball exists in in a lot of ways is to go from here to there. But until you're there, you know, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got actually came from a player in Richmond in 2019. His name is Gio Brusa. And he was the first one to tell me, this is the first time I heard this piece of advice was to be where your feet are. And that, you know, wherever your feet are is where you've got to be and you've got to do the best job you can where you, currently are in that moment. And so ever since Gio told me that, I've really tried to use that approach. And right now my feet are in Des Moines. And so I'm thrilled to be in Des Moines and call these Storm Chasers games in Des Moines. Next week, my feet will be back in Omaha for a couple of days. And then a few days after that, my feet will be in Denver to be back with the Mets. And so wherever my feet are, I'm just going to have fun doing what I'm getting the chance to do.
3: Yeah. Two more questions, Jake. I asked you earlier the difference between broadcasting a big league game and a minor league game. Was there a difference between calling a Mets game and a Royals game?
2: Hmm, that's interesting. I'd say a little bit. I think the the initial difference is sort of technical. You know, With the Mets, I was calling the game with Wayne Randazzo, who's a fellow play-by-play broadcaster. And so the dynamic that we have is a bit different and the angles that we approach the game with are somewhat similar. Whereas in Kansas City, I was calling the games with Mike Sweeney, a former player with a ton of stories and experience, firsthand experience about what we're seeing on the field. And so the approach is a little bit different where, you know, with Mike, there was an opportunity to, you know, draw the stories and experiences out of him to share on the air. You know, after, Bobby Witt Jr. hit his first big league home run and Harrison Bader accidentally threw it into the fountains at Kauffman Stadium. Mike shared a story about Aaron Giles' first big league home run going into the fountains and, you know, how he pretended to fish it out by, you know, going to the clubhouse later that night and throwing a ball in the hot tub for five minutes and then getting it out and handing it to Aaron and saying, hey, I got your home run ball and, you know, stuff like that he's able to share. Whereas, you know, with the Mets and having, you know, two play-by-play broadcasters kind of sitting next to each other, you know, there's just a different tact in approaching what you see on the field and breaking down the plays in a different way. That, that was the biggest difference between the Mets and the Royals.
3: And the last question, Jake, every broadcaster has a good story, a million good stories, even young broadcasters. I could ask you about, you know, your minor league experiences, but now that you are breaking into the big leagues, a good broadcast story.
2: Well, no doubt there will be hopefully many to come over the course of this season and and beyond. But there's one from literally the first game that I had the chance to do in the big leagues. And it's actually a story that I shared with Gary Cohen the next afternoon that he then shared on the air that night. And it's something that I will will never forget. So it's the bottom of the ninth inning uh, in that game on Friday in Arizona, first big league game. And the Mets are up 5-4 to four in the bottom of the ninth. Edwin Diaz is on the mound. He's gotten the first two outs. He's facing Dalton Varsho. Part of my responsibility on that broadcast is in the event of a Mets win, I need to be down in the field ready to get a postgame interview for the beginning of the postgame show. And so in the middle of the ninth with the Mets in front, I went down from the booth to the gate that's right next to the field, and I'm preparing to go onto the field after the final out and grab somebody. In this case, I was looking for James McCann because he hit his first home run of the year, and it was a big moment in the game. And then all of a sudden, Dalton Varsho hits a game-tying home run. And I also know that I have to call the 10th inning if the game goes into extras. And I swear, I didn't see the ball that, Varshow hit land as soon as it was off the bat and as soon as it was clear that it was going to be a home run that was going to tie the game i turned around and i started sprinting back up to the booth knowing a couple of things one that the inning could end on the very next pitch and then there's you know just a commercial break and here we are in the 10th and two it's the first time i've ever been in chase field and i only had a loose idea of where i was going and so exactly what you think might have happened is what happened i kind of got lost I found a staircase and thought, okay, press boxes up, staircases go up, let's go up this staircase. And I guessed right, you know, I found a door to the press box, but got to it after running up this staircase, and it's locked. And there's nobody there to let me into the press box. And by this point, the inning is ended, and I'm thinking, what am I going to do? How do I get back in there? I've got to do this. This is the first game. Like, I don't want to not be there. So I run back down the stairs, back to the main concourse, found an usher frantically asked him where the elevator was to the press level. I was on the third base side. He pointed me to the elevator on the first base side and said, hey, you got to go there. and So I sprint across the concourse. I get in the elevator. The doors close. And then, you know, it's like one of those like funny fight scenes in a movie where there's chaos everywhere. And then someone gets in an elevator and everything just stops. And you just hear the elevator music for like 60 seconds. And so that's what's going on while this elevator is going up a couple of floors. The doors... Open and I shoot out of the elevator like a cannon, sprinting down these hallways in the chase field press area, which is a bit of a maze. Uh, I turn left. I wasn't sure whether to go left or right, kind of took a guess, guessed correctly, wound up back in the booth, huffing and puffing as I'm sitting down, you know, preparing to call the 10th inning. Meanwhile, of course, I have nothing written down from the bottom of the ninth. The only thing I know is that they hit a game tying homer. Thankfully, Wayne was incredibly gracious and kind of held on to the broadcast a little bit when we came back on the air before tossing it to me for the 10th inning to, you know, allow me to catch my breath. Caught my breath, called the top of the 10th. The Mets take the lead on an overturned call on an infield single, and then the bottom of the 10th happens, and the Mets win, and in my first big league game, I got to call a a Mets win, and I will never, ever forget that frantic sprint from the field back to the booth and the ensuing moments that happened in, in my first big league game.
3: So it sounds like you are in pretty good shape.
2: <laughs> no, no, not at all. It <laughs> taught me that I need to run a little bit more so that if I get lost again, I'm not as out of
3: breath. No, fantastic. No, Jake, great story. You know, And thank you very much for coming on to Fangraphs Audio.
2: Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah.
3: And thanks everybody for listening.
0: This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Ben Charrington and Jake Eisenberg for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. Spread the word. It helps us out. Don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on all the stuff we are doing over at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. That'll do it for us. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next week.